Don't just ride the index. Seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Grey History, the French Revolution. Today's episode is titled Post-Necker Pre-Chaos, and we'll be primarily focusing on the scandalous actions that occur thanks to our friends in the nobility. With Jacques Necker dismissed, reactionary nobles seized an opportunity to make a lot of people angry in the Third Estate, while the Queen was embroiled in a scandal that completely destroyed her already pretty patchy public image a scandal which cemented her position as an aristocratic monster that would haunt her all the way until her untimely death. So without further ado, let's begin. Welcome to Grey History. Episode 4, Post-Necker, Pre-Chaos. War. What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. That's according to singer-songwriter Edward Starr in one of the most famous counter-cultural protest songs ever to be released. His 1970 single, War, channeled the attitude of many anti-interventionist activists who opposed America's conflict in Vietnam. In the song, Starr catalogues the negative outcomes that he associates with war. The destruction of innocent lives, the tears in mother's eyes, a generation's induction, then destruction, all for nothing according to Starr. Interestingly, however, this song has a very different tune to that sung by other anti-interventionist voices in previous centuries. Starr, in focusing on the devastation brought upon a nation's people, makes no reference to the devastation brought upon a nation's finances. Yet some 200 years before the release of Starr's single, the impacts of a conflict on the nation's finances was indeed a key focus for the anti-interventionist voices within the French government. As the French cabinet debated the merits of participating in its own exotic colonial war far to the west of the nation's frontier, it was not the destruction of innocent lives that concerned the anti-interventionist voices, but instead the destruction of innocent budgets. In 1776, French controller general of finances Turgot led the anti-war campaign within the French cabinet. Turgot warned that bankruptcy would hit the nation once the first shot was fired, and thus preached to his colleagues and to the king that France should stay out of the American Revolutionary War. Seven years later, as the dust settled on the conflict, it appeared on the surface that Turgot had been wrong. The nation looked fine after the first shot was fired when France openly entered the conflict in 1778. France looked fine after the tenth shot, the hundredth shot, even the thousandth shot. When the war ended in September 1783, some several thousand shots later, France still looked fine. 
In fact, it could be said that the war had not shot to pieces the solvency of the French state as much as it had shot to pieces the career of Turgot's populist successor Jacques Necker and the reforms that both men had aspired to implement while in office. Scratch under the surface, however, and Turgot's original prediction doesn't look so far off the mark. By the time peace reigned once more, the sturdiness of France's finances was in fact a complete illusion. Necker had cooked the books in his Comte de Rendu of 1781, and in reality, a future bankruptcy was now a real threat. No, wait, actually, that sentence implies that the threat was only a mere possibility. In reality, after the debt incurred by the American Revolutionary War, the French government was faced not so much with a potential future fiscal threat, as much as it was faced with a massive debt time bomb strapped to its very foundations. This bomb was ticking away until the clock hit zero. Not a position any government wants to be in. Yet, despite this uncomfortable fiscal reality, the French government made hardly any serious attempts to cut the red wire until the clock was just about done. I suppose the politicians of the late 18th century share this in common with the short-sighted spendthrift politicians we have today. As a quick aside, if you like horror movies, may I suggest usdebtclock.org. It's some pretty scary shit, and the best part is, is that it's cheaper than Netflix. But anyway, we digress. I promise that I'll try to contain my anti-government debt rant. At least, temporarily. Despite the obvious threat bankruptcy could bring to a nation, the French government failed to take any significant measures to try to avoid such a fiscal calamity until late 1786, three years after the American Revolutionary War ended. The result was three years of this debt time bomb ticking away as it was strapped to the foundations of the old regime. Tick, tick, tickety, tick. This inaction on the impending debt crisis does not mean, however, that no fireworks or explosions were going off in other parts of French society during this time. They most certainly were. In fact, in the six years between Necker's dismissal in May 1781 and the creation of a debt-fighting squad known as the Assembly of Notables in February 1787, three significant events occur which help to create the conditions for or the character of the coming revolution. The first is a power grab by the nobility that remains hotly debated amongst historians. The second is a scandal which cements the Queen's transformation from a foreign princess into a foreign monster and finally a foreign whore. Third, there is the continued spread of Enlightenment ideas throughout France just as the nobles were successfully making fools of themselves. So, as the debt bomb ticks away, let's just jump into the detail. The first key event in what I refer to as the post-Necker pre-chaos years of 1781 through to 1787 was a shameless power grab by the nobility. Now to help you understand just why the nobles do what they're about to do, and why they do it at this point in time, I want you to think back to a time in your high school life, at a time when your teacher was sick. When your teacher was sick, no doubt some poor unfortunate substitute teacher walked into your class and attempted to teach a lesson against all the odds. Now, in my school, the moment a substitute teacher walked into the classroom, chaos was unleashed almost instantaneously. To my left, German exchange students would suddenly appear, despite those students looking as if their ancestors had fought for the other key Axis power of World War II. To my right, coughing fits would almost immediately begin, despite the fact that no one had the flu and the kids who had actually been smoking at lunch were completely silent. In front of me were rubber band wars, behind me was the mosquito ringtone. Needless to say, I found this all very annoying as I sat there quietly, 
After all, I was on my laptop and I was trying to ignore the chaos and focus on rushing Paris in Empire Total War. Where am I going with this, you ask? Well, I suspect that like what I experienced, the moment your teacher was away, whatever self-imposed restrictions your fellow classmates had imposed on their behaviour fast evaporated. The absence of the teacher was a signal for an almost immediate absence of compliance. The departure of Jacques Necker from the government in May 1781 was akin to a substitute teacher walking into the classroom. Or more importantly, it was akin to authority leaving the classroom. The ambitious and reactionary nobility had grown tired of the trend of the last century. They had grown tired of a loss of power to an autocratic king, and they had grown tired of a loss of wealth to a rising bourgeoisie. To the reactionary elements of the nobility, Necker's dismissal was their chance to seize the political, social and economic gains they had been dreaming of for decades. Why was Necker's dismissal the sign to do this? Well, if you were a noble and you were looking for an opportunity to turn the clock back and make the nobility real actors in the political world again, well, wasn't Necker's dismissal the exact sign you were looking for? If you wanted to rectify the injustices inflicted upon your creed's rights and privileges, was not the dismissal of some reform-minded foreign Protestant heretic the definition of a perfect omen? If you sought to reinstall your blue-budded noble companions back into real power and to shut out the advancement of ambitious third estate members, was not the dismissal of a popular commoner from one of the most powerful positions in the ministry the signal to do so? Necker's dismissal must have been like a signal flare lighting up the night sky. No, in fact, it was much more than that. It must have been akin to Mance Raider lighting the biggest fire the North had ever seen. The Protestant, common-born foreigner, champion of the people and advocate for reform, had been dismissed. If this wasn't the chance for the reactionary nobility to strike, then when would be? And so, like schoolchildren without their teacher... Mischievous chaos engulfed the second estate almost immediately after the minister walked out the door. Within days of Necker's resignation in May 1781, reactionary nobles had successfully implemented policies seeking to strengthen their position within French society. Perhaps the most well-known of this was the Segur Ordinance. Named after the then Minister of War, the reforms included a policy regarding all officers in the infantry and cavalry to be able to prove their nobility for at least four generations. In other words, if you weren't a true-blooded noble, say goodbye to any lofty ideas of leading French troops to military glory. Take that, bourgeoisie scum. Not to be outdone by the army, the courts of the Parlements also implemented a similar measure seeking to entrench the interests of their noble families too. The nobility of the sword, that is the old military nobility, and the nobility of the robe, that is the nobility of the courts, had thus created for themselves a nice little reactionary bandwagon in the days and weeks after Necker's dismissal. Seeking to join this little reactionary party, the rural gentry spotted an opportunity not so much to exclude the third estate as much as to be enriched by it. The rural gentry decided it was time to enforce long-forgotten feudal rights to extract more cash from the peasants. Having grown increasingly poor in relation to the upper crust of the third estate, the rural gentry were keen to reverse the trend, and this reactionary moment gave them the opportunity they were looking for. Here's how historian Genato Salvamini describes the situation, as translated by I.M. Rawson. The nobles, assured now of support from both government and magistracy, applied themselves throughout the length and breadth of France to the enforcement of their seigneurial rights. They refused to recognise any rights on the part of their subjects that were not authorised by legal contract. 
They increased the corvée and feudal dues, and even insisted on payment of revenue fallen into arrears for the last 29 years. Moreover, they renewed the tax registers, making the peasants responsible for all expenses of compilation, laid hands on common property, disputed the rights of the populace over forest lands, and tightened up their monopolistic privileges. Thus, the nobility of the sword were establishing a monopoly of power within the armed forces. The nobility of the robe were doing the same within the parlements and the courts, and the poorer rural gentry were squeezing every last louis from the pretty penniless peasants to begin with. In fact, the rural gentry were doing 29 years of squeezing simultaneously. At once, they were chasing long-forgotten obligations that had been in arrears for the last three decades. Of course, none of this winning by the nobility made them popular amongst the 98% of the population that is the third estate. But hey, it's not like there's a revolution around the corner, so who cares? It's after seeing this series of events that we can understand why historian Arthur Hassel was so critical of Louis XIV, XV and XVI for failing to permanently and completely rein in the power of the nobility and render them to a similar status enjoyed by the English peerage. By suppressing noble power only temporarily or in a limited manner, the three kings had, in essence, allowed the nobility the opportunity to regroup within the ranks of government and scheme about their return to the good old days when they weren't just above the average farmer or a pompous courtier, but instead true wielders of French feudal power. Having pursued a policy that focused more on appeasing and distracting the nobility, rather than subordinating it, the chickens were now coming home to roost. At a time when Enlightenment ideas were gaining traction within society, many members of the nobility were running a complete and utter muck. While ideas such as representative government, equal taxation and ministerial accountability gained traction as an Enlightenment path forward, the nobility were simultaneously highlighting an unenlightened path which ought to be left behind. Now before we talk about what the Third Estate made of all of this, I would like to take one moment to acknowledge some grey. It is grey history after all. The story I have just told of reactionary nobles deliberately ostracising the Third Estate to protect their own interests or enrich their own interests was the point of view held by the revolutionaries themselves as well as many later historians. Recently, however, this class-based view of events has been challenged by revisionist historians. In particular, in 1974, historian David Bine published an alternative opinion to the then-conventional view of events I have just described. According to Bynes' view of the Signor audience, the nobility of the sword were not targeting the exclusion of the third estate, but other members of the second estate, specifically the nobles from non-military backgrounds. These policies were designed to exclude amateurs, not commoners, and that's why officers would need four generations of noble heritage, rather than just, say, the status of nobility itself. At face value, this isn't a ridiculous claim at all. The nobility were, after all, heavily divided amongst themselves, and one of the key reasons for this division was that more than half of the noble families in France had only been ennobled in the preceding two centuries. If you then take into account the fact that many members of the old nobility saw themselves as the true custodians of the military, and that they also saw recently ennobled nobles as greener than a blade of grass, well, you can start to see the merit of Bynes' claims. It could be argued that in an effort to ensure the military was operating most effectively, the nobility of the sword were excluding amateur nobles from positions of command and they weren't targeting commoners at all. Of course, that statement implies there were a great number of officers who were from the third estate to begin with. The truth is, is that the army had never been a great avenue for commoners to rise up through the ranks of French society. 
Between 1740 and 1780, it's estimated by some that only 5% of the army's officers were commoners at any given time. This evidence lends itself to the idea that the nobility of the sword were specifically targeting the nobles from the courts and the nobles from the civil bureaucracy. Nobles who were perceived to be unprofessional and inappropriate for military command because their families had only been ennobled in recent centuries. Bynes' argument gets a boost from another aspect of the reforms as well. As a result of the Signor audience, some members of the Third Estate actually found it easier to enter the officer corps. Sons of non-aristocratic officers were exempted from the four-generation noble blood requirement provided their father had won the Cross of St. Louis. Thus, those who came from proven military stock, those who came from bloodlines who had been bloodied in combat, these individuals were allowed positions of command. Within limits, it didn't matter whether one came from the second estate or third estate, you just couldn't be an amateur if you wanted to be an officer. That's, to me, a fairly reasonable policy. In summary, Bine and those who subscribe to his view point out that there is enough evidence to suggest that far from being an example of class confrontation in the years prior to the revolution, the Signor audience was in fact just a governmental policy designed to make the military more professional. I personally think the truth is probably somewhere in the middle between these two schools of thought. Sure, Bine is correct in the sense that some nobles were undoubtedly motivated by a drive to improve the military and had no intention of fueling underlying class conflict. But let's not forget a few things here. Firstly, these reforms happened almost immediately after Necker's dismissal. It's a little suspicious that the popular reformist, who was also a commoner, wasn't around for the passage of reforms which supposedly were popular and helped the commons. Secondly, these reforms were implemented at the same time as other members of the nobility were undeniably conducting reactionary activities. Bine might be able to explain away the military aspect of the Signor audience, but how do you explain away the fact that the nobles of the Parlements were simultaneously making the courts more exclusive too? How do you explain away the rural gentry enforcing taxes and rights that had been long forgotten? Some sort of aristocratic reaction was undeniably afoot. Thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, the Third Estate at the time didn't see the Signor audience as anything other than an aristocratic reaction. Signor's own son notes... A general belief prevailed that my father had inflicted a humiliating exclusion upon the third class of the state, and his ordinance became the principal object towards which the hatred and ill will of the plebeian class against the nobility already too bitter a character were henceforth directed. If the Segur audience was a reaction against non-military nobles rather than non-noble individuals, the common people didn't see it that way. And in fact, The Minister for War himself supposedly knew that they wouldn't see it that way either. According to Segur's son, the Minister fiercely argued against the ordinance that bore his name, stating it was impossible to expect the Third Estate to be anything other than outraged by restrictions on their talented young men. And let's be clear, outraged they were. The reforms were seen as yet another unnecessary limitation on the Third Estate an unnecessary limitation which flew in the face of Enlightenment thinking and principles. Combined with the actions of the rural nobility and the court schemes to remove the popular minister Jacques Necker, the whole series of events reeked of reactionary policy to the Third Estate. The perceived power grab of the aristocracy, whether real or imagined, tinged the old regime with the permanent smear of corruption, and it did so when the foundations of the old regime were already weakened by Enlightenment thinking and straddled with a ticking debt time bomb. When the bomb goes boom, the people would know exactly who they were going to blame for the chronic mismanagement of the state. 
This episode is brought to you by CoverGirl. Put the power of plants to work for your lashes with Lash Blast Clean Topia Mascara, now available in a new ultramarine black shade. This plant-powered, clean, vegan mascara delivers up to 300% more volume than bare lashes and brighter, more wide-awake-looking eyes thanks to ultramarine pigments for an intense black shade with hints of blue. Lash Blast Clean Topia Mascara, only from easy, breezy, beautiful CoverGirl. Do you know what my MC Light Out the Door Get Ready routine was missing? Deodorants that were made specifically for me and my skin. Introducing new Shea Moisture deodorants made especially for rich melanin skin. New Shea Moisture antiperspirant deodorants for underarms restore moisture, even skin tone, smooth and protect against sweat and odor for 48 hours. And new Shea Moisture whole body deodorants with plant-based ingredients and no aluminum to protect beyond, freshen around, down, under, and wherever you might want to control odor all over, all day. Shea Moisture deodorants go on invisibly and are black dermatologist and or gynecologist approved. My skin deserves this. How about yours? Living in my rich melanin and protecting it too. The second major development that occurs between Necker's dismissal and someone finally trying to defuse this debt problem was in regards to the lovely queen, Marie Antoinette. To understand this development, however, we need to dive into a little history about how an Austrian princess ended up in France in the first place. Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette The tale of these two lovers begins at a time when the political situation in Europe was undergoing great change. Change that would eventually lead to the Diplomatic Revolution of 1756. In the early 18th century, Austria and Great Britain had been natural allies as both countries were fierce, long-term rivals of France, the third great power in this equation. By the mid-century, however, this relationship between the three great powers was being reassessed by all three parties. Why? Well, all three were struggling to grapple with the emergence of two new players in the realm of European geopolitics. Prussia and Russia. Once upon a time, Austria viewed France as its main threat, and vice versa. The two powers had long jockeyed for primacy over Europe. With the logic of the enemy of my enemy is my friend, Austria's alliance with Great Britain seemed a natural one, as did France's friendly relationship with Prussia. Yet the days of France and Austria bitterly clashing had waned, and as the Prussians increasingly challenged Austria's hold on the Holy Roman Empire and much of modern-day Germany, Austria's hostility towards France shifted slowly towards this new challenger. When the War of Austrian Succession ended in 1748, some four decades before the revolution, Austria had fought both the Prussians and the French. Yet it was Prussian aggression, not French, which had started the conflict in 1740, and it was the Prussians who continued to dominate the nightmares of the court of Vienna. As a result of the war, Empress Maria Theresa got to keep her disputed crown, but the Prussians had got to keep the crown jewel the territory of Silesia. In annexing the territory, Prussia had increased its size by more than a third and gained a relatively industrial region with a significant tax revenue as well. The result was that Prussia was well and truly establishing itself as a soon-to-be great power. Losing Silesia to the increasingly menacing Prussians understandably left a very bitter taste in the mouths of the Austrians, a bitter taste which they quickly blamed on their British allies for not doing enough to prevent the annexation. 
Yet, the enlargement of Prussia left a bitter taste in the mouths of another as well, the French king, Louis XV. Louis XV saw in the Prussians, particularly their leader, Frederick the Great, a growing problem. The French had German-speaking territories. Furthermore, they had German-speaking allies located near the Rhine. Both were natural targets for Frederick's ambitions of consolidating more of modern-day Germany under a grand Prussian kingdom. As Prussia became more powerful, Louis XV fast came to the conclusion that while the upstart kingdom may have been friendly now, it would not always be friendly in the future. The result was the establishment of secret discussions between France and Austria. Maybe the once bitter enemies could bury the hatchet and become allies instead. Or maybe not. This hatchet-burying idea was greeted with hostility from key members of the French court. To Louis's advisers, Frederick the Great was not to be feared, but respected. They admired the Prussians' professionalism, his valour, his promotion of art, literature and religious tolerance. To them, Frederick was an asset against the villainous Austrians. Furthermore, the French people themselves may not have shared this admiration for Prussia, but they certainly shared this hatred for the court of Vienna. Pretty much everyone except Louis XV thought an alliance with Austria was not only a bad idea, but it was a bad idea that shouldn't even be entertained. Yet, unthinkable ideas were required when unthinkable things happened. What occurred, you ask? Well, just as the monarchs of France and Austria were becoming increasingly friendly towards each other, well, bam. The British and the Prussians ditch their former allies and sign a defensive alliance in January 1756. It turned out that the Austrians weren't the only ones rethinking the Anglo-Austrian alliance, and the British had seemingly come to the conclusion that the rising Prussian kingdom would be a better ally henceforth. In response, France and Austria quickly signed a defensive pact of their own. Here's the best part, however. Having secured an alliance with the other major European land power, the Austrians begin to plan a secret attack on Prussia to reclaim Sicilia. Unfortunately for the Austrians, the Prussians were better at secret attacks and, in anticipating the move, preemptively striked Saxony. A consistent lesson of history should be that the Prussians strike first. With Prussia and Austria now at war, the Austrians invoked their alliance with the French, and that dragged them into the conflict. What's this particular party called? That's right, the Seven Years' War. The same Seven Years' War which resulted in France essentially losing all her colonies on the continent of North America, and the same Seven Years' War which resulted in national humiliation. A humiliation, let's not forget, that was theatrical in nature. What all this means is that many in France would blame the defeat of the Seven Years' War not only on the unpopular King Louis XV, but also on his unpopular alliance with France's ancestral enemy and historical rival, Austria. It's perhaps no surprise then that the alliance which resulted in a humiliating defeat went from being disliked to outright hated. And it was this hated Austrian alliance which would produce the soon-to-be-hated Austrian queen Marie Antoinette. Introducing the lovely Marie Antoinette. By the time the future queen arrives in France in 1770, six years after the disastrous end of the Seven Years' War, she's not exactly the most popular of individuals. She isn't exactly unpopular, sure, that's true, but it's not exactly easy to be popular when you're an Austrian. On the bright side, however, the future queen, and more importantly her husband, the future king, Louis XVI, were viewed as a new hope for the Bourbon monarchy. It seemed the young girl was not only destined to help solidify the Franco-Austrian alliance, but also the new French golden age as well. 
Unfortunately for Marie Antoinette, for her husband, and for France, the people's attitudes towards the new princess followed a similar trajectory to that of the alliance which brought her to France in the first place. Down. The reason why her popularity followed this trajectory had everything to do with what was not going down. Marie Antoinette had one job, produce male heirs, and unfortunately for the Queen-to-be, she struggled to fulfil that obligation for some time. Now, it's perhaps not surprising that young Louis and Marie didn't get to work on baby making from day one. He was 15, she was 14, and being married by proxy probably didn't help get the love bugs biting. But the problem was the couple didn't get to work on helping produce little Louis with any sort of haste. Eventually, though, Marie Antoinette was able to tell her mother some good news on the baby-making front. She wrote in August, I think our marriage has been consummated. Now, it's not the lack of certainty I want you to focus on here, although stating, I think we had sex, is certainly worrisome in and of itself. What's even more problematic here, though, is the date that this message was conveyed. Because when I said Marie Antoinette told her mother this news in August, I wasn't talking about August 1770. This uncertain declaration didn't occur four months after the couple had been married in April. 999. This letter was written in August 1773, three years after the couple were married. Furthermore, it wouldn't be until 1777 that the now Queen Marie Antoinette would write with certainty that the deed had been done. That's right, seven years. And here I am thinking that seven days is a long time. Now, there's a few reasons why this took so long to occur. Some reports indicate that Louis actually found sex painful and that sexual relations with his wife weren't really possible until after an operation was performed on his penis. This was the opinion of de Mercy, the Austrian ambassador to France. Some historians, however, have disputed this and believe instead that Louis was simply just wary of women. And I mean... Why wouldn't you be? They argue that young Louis saw the mistresses of his grandfather, Louis XV, and perceived their influence on the king as toxic. Therefore, Louis XVI viewed women with suspicion. Whatever the cause, the result was clear. Marie Antoinette, forced upon France by an unpopular alliance, became the centre of public scrutiny and rumour. The underground press first began to depict her as an untrustworthy foreigner who meddled with the actions of the French court. But as the sexual status of the couple became public knowledge, more sinister rumours circulated through Versailles and the country. Marie Antoinette was accused of seeking pleasures elsewhere, as the king could not satisfy her. To add to the scandal, she reportedly sought them with both men and women. It did not take long before the underground press was depicting illustrations of Marie Antoinette indulging in these hedonistic desires and depicting Louis as an inadequate, incompetent cuckold. Now, most of these labels were produced after 1789, once the revolution commenced. However, potentially as many as 10% of those produced were in circulation prior to 1789, and more than 100 different labels depicting Marie Antoinette in various forms of indecent acts were in circulation during the 1770s. In fact, a popular one from 1779 titled The Love Life of Charlie Antoinette depicted Queen Marie Antoinette fooling around with the king's brother, the Comte Artois. This label was circulating a whole 10 years prior to the revolution of 1789. Fast forward the clock till after the American Revolutionary War, where we are in our story right now, and things had gotten only worse. 
As the American Revolutionary War was being waged, and as Necker had released the famous budget, the Comte de Rendu, the document demystified the expenses of state, and as a result, made clear the expenses of the court. As the nation waged war overseas, members of the public were outraged by the wasteful extravagancies of the court. Now, it's true that court costs weren't a significant proportion of the state's expenses, somewhere near 10%, but they were significant enough for the average member of the Third Estate. Well known for her love of gambling and lavish lifestyle, the Queen was an easy target for those looking to blame someone for all the perceived waste. And so, in addition to all her other faults, the popular psyche began to blame the Queen for spending the nation's wartime resources on unnecessary luxuries. Thus, over the course of a decade, Marie Antoinette's status in the public eye had slowly but surely deteriorated. Initially a symbol of an unwanted alliance, she became a meddlesome foreigner, then an adulteress, and finally the supposed principal architect of the nation's debt. The result was that come 1785, the year of the diamond necklace affair, the French public were all too willing to blame the Queen for a scandal she was innocent of committing. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. So you need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. And it needs to say, I'm a thoughtful person, and I appreciate you, and I know exactly what you like, all at the same time. Well, Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life, like the pickleballer, the jazz fan, or the pasta lover. From 90s nostalgia and mixology to reality TV and gaming, there's something for everyone on Etsy. Whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you, Gift Mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. The Diamond Necklace Affair all starts with Cardinal de Rohan, an ambitious member of the First Estate who sought to improve his prestige at the French court. Rahan decided that the best way to gain that prestige was to win favour with the Queen, long known for playing favourites. Rahan had to figure out a way to get the Queen's attention and then affection, and it's here that we introduce the villain of this story, Jeanne de la Motte. Jeanne portrayed herself as a distant ancestor of a French king, and more importantly, as an individual who had a friendship with the Queen, Marie Antoinette. Before long, Cardinal de Rohan was given Jeanne large sums of money, and in return, the Cardinal's notes were being ferried to the Queen. The Queen supposedly read the notes and wrote back to the Cardinal, although these were of course just being written by Jeanne to keep the charade going. But this charade could only continue for so long, so Jeanne improved the ruse. Jeanne then hired a prostitute to dress up as Marie Antoinette, and on a very dark night in August 1784, had this prostitute meet the Cardinal in the Grove of Venus in the grounds of Versailles and hand the Cardinal a rose. The prostitute, who was actually wearing a gown belonging to the Queen, told the Cardinal, You know what this means, before disappearing into the night. As you can imagine, the amount of money Cardinal de Rohan starts giving to Jean de la Motte is skyrocketing. 
let's introduce the diamond necklace into this cauldron of trouble. This necklace was a Riviera necklace, a monstrosity of a thing that dangled from the wearer's body and often ran down towards the wearer's waist. It was joked amongst some men that the jewels were returning to their source when they saw a beautiful woman wearing a Riviera necklace that drooped quite low. The diamond necklace was a beast of a necklace that was not to the taste of Marie Antoinette, who was one of the few possible buyers due to the expense of the thing. Marie Antoinette didn't particularly like neither the necklace itself nor the individual it was originally intended for, Louis XV's mistress, Madame du Barry. Besides, by the time it was finished, the French were involved in the Revolutionary War, and it was rumoured that the Queen had said that she would prefer battleships instead. The fact that this necklace can be compared to battleships gives you an idea of just how expensive this thing was worth. It came at a price tag of 1.5 million livres. Years after the Queen turned down the necklace, Jeanne de la Motte convinced Cardinal de Rohan that the Queen did actually want the necklace. So, the jewellers were approached, and Rohan arranged the necklace to be paid off in instalments. Rohan then handed off the necklace to the Queen's representative. That representative happened to be Jeanne de la Motte's lover. The heist was successful. The diamonds were never seen again. The whole charade eventually came undone, however. Well, it's unsurprising, really. When the first instalment of 400,000 livres wasn't paid to the jewellers, they promptly went to the king asking for an explanation. The result was the king asking Cardinal de Rohan for an explanation before being locked up in the Bastille to await a public trial. That's right. You heard right. Get ready. Public trial. Who doesn't love a good old-fashioned witch hunt? The queen certainly did. She was all too keen to grab her pitchfork and tiki torch and go nuts. Too keen, in fact. Unfortunately for the queen, who was completely innocent of this whole affair, the public trial didn't go to plan. The Comte de Provence summed up the situation as follows. When the necklace affair came to the queen's knowledge, she, not knowing all the details, but being well aware of the change in public opinion towards herself, imagined that a striking verdict in her favour would prove the whole truth. She was mistaken, because in matters of this kind, it's always more expedient to hush up than to proclaim from the housetops. But she thought of nothing but the affront she had sustained. And so began the public trial. While Rohan and Delamotte were the ones convicted, the person the people were really judging was the Queen. She may have been innocent, but the underground press didn't really care. In an age of pornographic labels that depicted the Queen as a power-hungry, hedonistic adulteress who was driving the country to bankruptcy, it was easy to depict her not as the helpless victim, but as the criminal mastermind. In the eyes of the public, the Queen really did want the necklace, and the evil monarch threw every one of her lambs to the wolves when her plans to acquire the necklace were foiled. The fact that she was well known for liking expensive jewellery added legitimacy to this depiction of events. She certainly did have expensive tastes. In January 1776, the Queen spent 600,000 francs on a set of diamond earrings, and nearly half of that on a pair of bracelets just a few months later. Thus, while the truth was on her side, the public was not. Over the next few months, very public trials were conducted by the Paris Parlement, who, as the principal antagonist against royal absolutism, loved the opportunity to drag the monarchy's name through the mud. They hadn't forgot that the monarchy had suppressed them some decade before, even though they had forgotten that Louis XVI was the one that brought them back from exile. 
the public affair, not hushed up but instead put under the spotlight, permanently blackened the Queen's image. This is how historian Robert Johnson describes the situation. This incident created great excitement and was much distorted by public report. It left two lasting impressions, one relating to Madame de la Motte, the other to the Queen. The adventuress was too obvious a scapegoat to be spared. While Rohan was allowed to leave the Bastille after a short imprisonment, the woman was brought to trial and was sentenced to public whipping and branding. Her execution was carried out in bungling fashion, and at the foot of the steps leading to the law courts, where Stanton's voice was to reverberate so loudly in his struggle with so-called justice ten years later, a disgraceful scene occurred. The crowd saw Lamotte struggling in the hands of the executioners and rolling with them in the gutter, heard her utter loud shrieks as the branding iron was at last applied to her shoulders. The impression produced by this revolting spectacle was profound and was heightened by the universal belief that Marie Antoinette was no less guilty in one direction than Madame de Lamotte had been in another. The outbreak of slander and of Lobel against the Queen goes on accumulating from this point with ever-increasing force until her death eight years later. A legend comes into existence, becomes blacker and blacker, and cultivates in the atrocious accusations made against her by Herbert before the Revolutionary Tribunal. He goes on to say, And the population of Paris broods over this legend, and when revolution comes, makes of Maria Antoinette the symbol of all that is monstrous, infamous, and cruel in the system of the Bourbons. Makes of her the marked victim of the vengeance of the people. It is a cruel twist of fate that the true victim of this entire plot, Queen Marie Antoinette, was perceived as the perpetrator in the eyes of the public. Furthermore, that this misperception cemented the victim's transformation into a monster in the public psyche. Already considered a parasite on the nation's finances and a stain on the nation's honour, the diamond necklace affair cemented the Queen's transformation into a symbol for all that was cruel, all that was grotesque, all that was loathsome in the old regime. She was now in every sense, a demonic figure. A demon that needed to be killed. And a demon that would be. Lest you think nothing positive happens in the post-Necker pre-chaos years, I'm here to brighten your day. Besides the aristocratic reaction and the diamond necklace affair, there was a significant third development that occurred as the debt bomb ticked away to zero. Whilst the nobles were busy reinforcing long-forgotten privileges and excluding the bourgeoisie, and while the monarchy was mired in scandal, the ideas of the Enlightenment were starting to gain more traction within more liberal sections of both the nobility and the Third Estate. Political clubs and salons had started sprouting up throughout France to discuss the ideas of Locke, Rousseau, Voltaire, Montesquieu, and other leading philosophers. The explosion of ideas was partly because censorship was waning and that the authorities weren't as strict as they used to be, but primarily the explosion of ideas was because of what was happening across the Atlantic. For the last several years, America had been, well, working. The United States, it's important to remember, was an experiment, and the United States had been constructing a model society built on reason and natural law, and for the first time ever acting as a model for what Enlightenment ideas would look like if they would be used to govern a society. Before America existed, these ideas of how government should be structured, of how society should work, of how people should live, these ideas were untested. That was no longer the case. America was a living, 
tangible example of an alternative way of doing things, and it was an example which stood in significant contrast to the societies of the old world. As the actions and scandals of the aristocracy dominated the French press, America must have acted like a light, beaming an enlightened path for all to follow. Historian Richard McKee, in his work American Revolutionary Influences on the French Revolution, states, The American Revolution produced for the people of France an educational program of gigantic proportions, and goes on to proclaim that the French intellectuals could foresee in America the nirvana of the future golden age and a model for a new France. Indeed, America was becoming viewed as a nirvana in some key sections of French society. Not necessarily because America was a republic, the monarchy, particularly the king, was still popular, but America was a nirvana because it was not built on stale customs or outdated traditions. It was not built on long entrenched interests and questionable superstitions. It was built instead on the ideas of liberty, equality, fraternity, constitutional government, ministerial accountability, democracy. For the bourgeoisie, who could no longer join the ranks of the aristocracy, and for the nobles, who viewed their privileges as unjust and as unnatural, the former colonies thus represented a path to follow. Historian Peter Kruupton states, It is certain that the revolution in America stimulated the energies of the middle-class revolutionaries, and goes on to say, The revolution in America had, meanwhile, helped to awaken the minds and to inspire them with the breadth of liberty and republican democracy. Historian Charlie Matthews agrees and states, The American Revolution not only won French aid, but as any reader of the Declaration of Independence can understand, it offered practical lessons to the French enthusiasts for liberty. Historians of all stripes seem to agree that the American experiment appeared as a delightful alternative to old regime France, and that many liberal nobles and ambitious bourgeoisie were taking notice. Thus, as the nobility were busy reinforcing their exclusive privileges, as the monarchy was engulfed in scandal, as the country started to face the very real threat of bankruptcy, America offered an alternative. And in offering an alternative, in showing that Enlightenment ideas could indeed be used to model and govern a society, these ideas, and the philosophes that propagated them, started to become more prominent, more influential, and more powerful. Couple this with an increasingly liberal press, food shortages, and an impending bankruptcy, and you have all the ingredients you need for one hell of a revolutionary party. Historian Robert R. Palmer summarises all this amazingly, and is where I would like to finish this post-Necker pre-chaos years. Palmer, in his book The Age of Democratic Revolution, states, Whether fantastically idolised or seen in a factual way, whether as a mirage or as a reality, America made Europe seem unsatisfactory to many people of the middle and lower classes, and to those of the upper classes who wished them well. It made a good many Europeans feel sorry for themselves and induced a kind of spiritual flight from the old regime. That spiritual flight from the old regime will develop very shortly into a spiritual fight over what should replace it. Thank you for listening to episode four, post Necker pre-chaos. Next episode, we'll be covering the bankruptcy and the assembly of notables, which fast transforms itself into an assembly of rebels. Now, if you've enjoyed today's episode and you're keen for some more grey history, then there is something you can do to help secure that. Please tell people. 
Tell your friends, tell your colleagues, tell the person sitting next door to you on the train, tell anyone who you think might enjoy a history podcast that explores the grey. It's a new podcast and I need all the help I can get, so if you're enjoying the show, please do spread the word. Thank you for listening and have a great day. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.